I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but if you were to take a pen or a pencil and underline every time that the Apostle Paul mentions the name of Jesus or Jesus Christ in the first ten verses of this epistle, when you got finished, you would have ten marks in your Bible because ten times in ten verses he makes an explicit reference to the name of Jesus Christ. Now, if you add to that uh, what we might consider secondary references, phrases like in Him and simply Lord, the number just goes up. Now, what we learn from that is, is this. The Apostle Paul was a man enthralled. He was utterly consumed with Christ. He was eager that every moment of his life be used to serve Jesus Christ. We, we know that he even famously says, for me to live is Christ. Simply put, he, he could say broadly, from him and through him and to him are all things. But we know that the, that the apostle believes that even about the specific details of his own life, from him, through him, and to him, is every moment, every thought, every word, everything about my being, it is simply Christ. It's for him, given to him, owed to him, from him to be turned back to him. He was a man obsessed with Christ. Now, if we go beyond that, his personal obsession with the Lord Jesus, through God's grace given to him, Paul understood that if you want to foster a or, or nourish a spirit of humility amongst a group of Christians, just keep talking about God in Christ. Just keep saying it over and over and over because nothing forces us to reckon with our desperate condition more than being constantly thrust in our hearts and in our minds and our souls in our in speech into the presence of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That that is what brings us low. No man, woman, boy or girl whose soul is constantly weaving in and out of the presence of God with right thoughts and right meditations about Him will be able to continue long with haughty eyes or an envious spirit or a bitter spirit towards other people. It's like, like if you had an ice cube and you just kept moving it in and out of nearness to a flame. You don't have to hold it there. You just move it there and pull it back and move it there and pull it back and eventually your hand is going to be a puddle of water. It will be melted. Our, our souls are like that. The more that we come in and out of the presence of God, and, and what I mean is in our thoughts and meditations, obviously we know we live before God always, but in our thinking, in our, our hearts, in and out of the presence of God in Christ, we cannot help but be melted. Paul knows that. 
He knows that from experience. You've probably heard it said he was literally knocked off of his high horse. He was put on the ground, a very proud man, put on, his, put on the ground, on his back, in the presence of Jesus. He had experienced this type of, of humbling and humiliation. And, and so it's from that experience, as well as under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit using that experience, Paul uses this as a communication tactic to strike a chord with the saints in Corinth because they needed a dose of humility. That's what they needed. So what do you do? You just keep saying Jesus Christ. You just keep saying it. Christ Jesus. Christ the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over and over. And a Christian in that scenario will be melted. He knows that. He just keeps saying the name. The name that is above every name. The name at which someday every created knee will bow. The Lord Jesus Christ, over and over and over. And as Christians, we ought to familiarize ourselves with that name. We ought to be much in the presence of Him in our thoughts and our meditations to prepare ourselves for the day when we will stand in His presence. We need to be those types of people. We saw this in the salutation, the opening three verses. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He writes to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Christians are those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just over and over. It sound, we don't talk like that. Normal human beings in normal conversation don't talk like that. He's being intentional. This is, there's a purpose behind it. And... and so since we've concluded the salutation, we can now turn to what we might consider the formal starting place of the letter, which is Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for the Corinthians. And we're going to see he just keeps doing the same thing. I pointed out in those first three verses that Paul begins from the outset with a sort of a very fine chisel. And he's, he's hammering away, or he's chipping away the, the, the remnants of the corrupt worldview that was in the Corinthians from the very outset. He doesn't say anything haphazardly. He's not out to waste ink and paper. Everything is pointed. It's intentional. Now when we come to this prayer in verses 4 through 9, he's still doing the same thing. There, there aren't throwaway words and phrases. It's not as though the Holy Spirit says, you, you get the introduction down and then let me know and I'll come in. Or, or let me sit down and take a break. You fill in some white space and then I'll come back when we really get to the meat of the letter. No, every word of it is the inspired Word of God. Every word of it is intentional. He knows what He's going to say in the rest of the letter. He knows what He's going to have to address them on later. In the, salu in the salutation... He began hammering away at their crass individualism or what we might call their vainglory. He's chiseling away at it. Here, he slides the scalpel over to a primary area of concern, which is their poor stewardship of God's gracious gifts to them. And he begins to cut very slowly. Now, he's going to get deeper later on. But he begins to cut. Now with that in, in our minds, let's read verses 4 through 9 together. I give thanks to my God always for you, 
because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Because of the way Paul writes, and maybe it's just me, I think this paragraph, because it's mostly one long sentence and then a short sentence, I think it's kind of hard to follow. I, I, as I read it, I find a, a difficulty in tracing it down to its uh, primary emphasis and theme. And so as we walk through these verses, I'm not just going to go straight through verse 4 to verse 9. I want to look over the whole thing broadly, and then we'll look a little bit closer, and then we'll look a little bit closer, sort of zeroing in on the, the primary idea that he's getting at. And I'm hoping that that doesn't actually make it more confusing than it, than it is to anybody else or that it might be. Uh, this, is, this is what helped me to get, to, to get my mind wrapped around it. So we're going to open up this prayer of the apostle under three main headings. Number one, it's general thesis. And then number two, it's overall emphasis. And then number three, it's detailed analysis. So number one, it's general thesis. If we wanted to summarize this whole paragraph up, this whole prayer, up into one thesis statement, it would go like this. In these verses, Paul is describing a prayer of thanksgiving for this church, affirming the obvious work of God among them in spite of their errors, while also avoiding any tendency to flatter them. That's what he's doing. He's describing a prayer for the church, a prayer of thanksgiving, affirming God's obvious work among them, while not flattering them. That's the point. Now I want to show you that from the verses. First, he is describing a prayer. Now this is not really a, a major point of concern. Throughout the, the message, I will refer to this section as Paul's prayer. And that, that's perfectly normal. But if you pay attention to the language, Paul is actually describing his prayer. He's not praying. He says, I give thanks to my God. He doesn't say, thank you, O God. He's describing a prayer. This is not a third-person perspective like we might see in many Old Testament passages where a, 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 a scribe wrote down the words of somebody as they pray. This is a first-person perspective. Paul is describing to the Corinthians the basic truths in his prayers for them. He's describing a prayer. We also see in association with that that this is a personal prayer of thanksgiving. He says, I give thanks to my God. Paul himself is actually thankful for these people. 
Now that might not seem like a big deal, but as we get through the letter, by the time you get finished reading First and Second Corinthians, you wonder how could anybody be thankful for these people, especially this man. But he's thankful for them. This man who had planted the church and who has and will continue to endure much anxiety over them, he says, I'm thankful for God's work among you. Now the life source of any prayer is ultimately the object to whom the prayer is given. And here we notice, I believe, the first major point of the passage is that it is bookended with God. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God. Verse 9, God is faithful. Bookended with God. As we'll see, Paul, God is central in Paul's thoughts. Paul is a man turned Godward in everything that he does. Now prayer is an act of worship. And so here we see the only object worthy of our worship and therefore our prayers is the living God. Paul says, I give thanks to my God. Which God? The faithful God. Paul's not praying here. But we do learn that a common staple of Paul's regular routine is that he's going to God on behalf of these saints because he knows God is faithful. We also see that the prayer being described here is a congregational prayer. He's praying for the church, in other words. Every use of the word you, Y-O-U in English, there's eight of them here, they're all plural. They're all, they're all y'alls to us. He's praying. He says, I'm, I thank my God for y'all. The work of God in y'all. It's all plural. He's, he's describing the whole number of them. The whole church. And ultimately, it'll be up to the individual in the congregation to determine for themselves whether what he's saying is actually true of them. It's congregational. He's thanking God for the church. Now, why is he so thankful? Well, we see why as he openly affirms God's obvious work among them. Why is he thankful? Because God is at work. Verse 4, he refers to the grace of God that was given you. Then in verse 5, he says, In every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge. Verse 7, you are not lacking in any gift. Verse 8, speaking of, I believe, Christ, Christ will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, you were called into the fellowship of His Son. Over and over, He's talking about all the things God has done among them. He's affirming this. As much as He'll have to say about their problems, later on in the epistle, He begins by saying, listen, I personally go to the God of heaven and earth thanking Him for what He's done among you, for giving you grace, for enriching you, for giving you everything that you need. I know that He who began a good work will bring it to completion. And I know that He began the work because you were effectually called into union with His Son. He's affirming all of that. Now, we, we often say something like, uh, chew up the meat and spit out the bones. Or at this time of the year, chew up the fruit and spit out the seeds. Right? What, what Paul's saying is, in spite of all of the seeds, there's fruit. There's fruit here. God has worked. God is working. God will work. And for that, I'm thankful. That's what he's saying. In fact, Paul is so confident in God's work in this church 
that he's even willing from the outset to mention some of the hot-button issues that are going to come up later. He's going to reprove them on the very things that he says right here, I'm thankful for this stuff. In verse 5 he says, You were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. Now he's referring to manifestations of the Holy Spirit among them, what we would call spiritual gifts. The, the very gifts we'll find out later, they were using to exalt themselves. That doesn't stop Paul. He says, I'm thankful that God is actually working there. He addresses those things, and yet he doesn't flatter them. He doesn't use this occasion. He's thanking God. He's talking about the gifts and, and the work of God, but he leaves no room for them to become proud at all. Notice what he says in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God. God is to be thanked, not you. The grace at work is God's grace, not your grace. He doesn't say, I thank you for the grace of God at work in you. He's thanking God. In verse 5, he says, you were enriched in Him. The gifting here comes through union with Christ. It's not your power. It's Him. Verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. The, the flow of grace has come through the confirmation of the gospel of Christ. Testimony about Christ or testimony of Christ, I believe that's synonymous with the gospel that was preached among you. That's what he's saying. The, the message from outside of you came to you, was confirmed in you. All, all of it, you're, you're just there. You're, you're uh, practically passive, and yet it's from that that grace begins to come out. The, the testimony was confirmed. Verse 8, he says, Christ will sustain you to the end. You're not going to sustain yourselves. And then again in verse 9, God is faithful. And faithful He must be because the Corinthians, nor you or I, apart from Him, can be faithful. We, we can't endure. We can't sustain. We don't pray to ourselves, do we? No, because I know I'm not faithful. You, you start praying to me, I'll, I'll have to text you tomorrow and say, can you remind me again of what that prayer was? Because I've already forgotten it. Not God. He's faithful. You say it, He hears it. He's faithful. He doesn't, it doesn't flatter them. They can't read any of this and then begin to get proud because everything is attributed to God. He can give thanks to God for His grace in this church in spite of their sinful abuses because ultimately the grace is attributable to God. Now, the sin that He's going to have to reprove them for, that's their fault, right? The fruit's God's. The seeds you've got to spit out, that's you. That's all you. We're all seed. We're all bones. But what God gives is fruit, is meat. Where there's something good, we thank God. Where there is sin, well, we can take credit for that all day long. See, this is the general thesis. This is the idea. Paul is describing a prayer of thanksgiving for this church. He affirms the work of God. He avoids flattery. Very simple. Now stop for a minute and just think about Paul's heart for this church in the way that he's going about this in this letter. He says, I give thanks always. That is, at every opportunity. He's praying, thanking God for these people. He addresses the fruit in spite of the seeds. He gives thanks in spite of their conduct. He keeps the whole issue turned towards God in Christ. One commentator says, Paul never disparages the sovereign work of the Spirit in the church. 
only improper attitudes and abuses. And we have to learn to distinguish between the two. Paul knows how to distinguish. I can thank God for all this stuff over here. Well, yeah, but what about this? We'll get there. But I can thank God for this. He never disparages the sovereign work of the Spirit in the church. Some other quotes from, from commentators. Not only the churches which bring Him unmixed joy, such as the Philippians, invite regular thanksgiving on Paul's part, but even troublesome Corinth. For the very existence of their faith as Christians outweighs any personal inconvenience, disappointment, or anguish which their less than appropriate attitudes and at times lifestyles also bring. In other words, the very fact that God was at work among them, that far outweighed all the inconvenience that Paul would have to go through. And he was thankful. Now drawing this to an application, another, another man says, to delight in God for His work in the lives of others is sure evidence of one's own awareness of being the recipient of God's mercies. This was Paul. How do we know God or that Paul had received great mercy from God? Great grace from God? Because he was thankful when he saw it in other people. Can you imagine being so profoundly shaped by God's grace and so overwhelmed by the existence of God's grace and the God of all grace that at every opportunity you thanked Him for His grace? And then you went beyond that. And you thanked Him for His grace in other people. And then you went even beyond that and you thanked Him for the grace in other people who are actually an inconvenience to you the broad majority of the time. How often do we disparage God's grace in ourselves or others by simply overlooking it? We say, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, and yet we still struggle to see past the sin to see the grace. All grace is way bigger than sin. Well, then why can't you see past it? We say the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But then we're often too busy focusing our microscope in on the sin to see this grace of God that has appeared. You see, Paul was such a Christ-consumed, grace-obsessed man that everywhere he looked, he spotted an evidence of God's grace. And then he fell to his knees and gave thanks for it. From experience, I know that a, a little boy who for some odd reason is obsessed with motorcycles and dirt bikes will see one everywhere he goes. He'll spot one. And when he spots it, it catches his eye, it, it turns his neck, it stops him mid-sentence, he yells it out, he calls everybody's attention to it. When everybody else is saying, where? I don't see it. Well, I didn't see it, buddy. I don't. Good, good job, buddy. Whatever. Or, no, that was a scooter. Whatever it might be. Nobody else notices it, but he notices it. Why? Because he's obsessed. It's stuck in his mind. For some reason, he, he just can't help but not see it. This is how Paul was with God's grace. So consumed, he couldn't help but be captivated by it. See it. Notice it. Call attention to it. Rubberneck. Stop mid-sentence. 
And we see this in the epistles. Mid-sentence. Doxologies of praise. He can't help but, but thank God for it. He's describing his prayer. He's affirming grace. He's avoiding flattery. That's what he's doing here. Number two, let's consider the overall emphasis of Paul's prayer. In the form of a question, what is the main theme of Paul's prayer? Well, we've already hit on it, and he tells us right from the start. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God. That's the theme. The overall emphasis of Paul's prayer is the grace of God. His chief concern is not the Corinthians for the Corinthians' sake. He thanks God for them because of God's grace in them. God's grace towards them. Now, not only does He just come right out and say it, but He continues with it. And you notice this if you follow the grammar and if you just pay attention to the substance all the way down through, the, the emphasis is grace all the way through. Notice the grammar. He begins in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And then everything else flows from there. Verse 5. That in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. In other words, the grace of God was shown in this way. You were enriched in all speech and all knowledge. Then in verse 6 he says, Even as... The testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. That phrase, even as, could be translated in as much as or to the degree that. Clearly connecting that with what came before it. And then in verse 7, he begins with, so that you are not lacking in any gift. In other words, here's the result of that. Notice the flow. Paul is thankful for them because of the grace of God, shown in the fact that they were enriched with all speech and all knowledge. And they were enriched in as much as or to the degree that the testimony about Christ was confirmed among them. And all of that results in the fact that they're not lacking in any gift. It's all connected. There's a chain here as he walks through. We see a bunch of commas, and I see a bunch of commas. I struggle to sort of put together how all of this goes, but that's what he's doing. You received grace. We know because you were enriched, and you were enriched in as much as the testimony was, was confirmed, and the result is you have everything you need. It's all connected. Grammatically, everything flows from the grace of God. Now, with regard to the substance... It's clearly God's grace which colors this entire prayer. Again, verse 4, he says that he's thankful for the grace of God that was given them in Christ Jesus. The word grace is, we, we looked at it last week, charis. C-H-A-R-I-S is what it looks like in the English. It means gift, but it's the typical word for grace, charis. Okay? Verse 5, he references all speech and all knowledge. Those are specific examples of what will be referred to in chapter 12 as charismata. See the, the connection? We call them spiritual gifts or grace gifts. Charismata or charismati. And then in verse 7, he says, you are not lacking in any gift. That's the word, charismata. You've heard charismata or charismatics. That's where it comes from. In other words, 
The substance of Paul's prayer from beginning to end is God's grace. That's everything he's talking about is the working of God's grace amongst this church. The overall emphasis is grace. Now last week we looked at the, the grace of God and we considered it primarily in that objective sense. That self-giving of God in and through the work of Jesus Christ to reconcile sinful men to Himself in His life and death and resurrection. Grace in that sense reconciles us to God objectively. It's an act because of an act performed outside of us that comes to us at the moment of first faith, we are reconciled to God. We come into God's grace and we took note that even God's grace prior to that is bringing us along and planned for us that type of objective grace. Now, Paul is moving from that objective grace to what we might call subjective or the personal application of the grace in the everyday life of a Christian. This is the specific kind of grace mentioned in a passage like 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What he's talking about there is Paul's ongoing ministry, his daily ministry to the end of his life, in spite of that thorn in the flesh, God says, My grace is sufficient every moment of every day to bring you through. It's not necessarily objective. It's ongoing. It continues. The grace of God continues to come to Paul. More closely related, I believe, to our text is 2 Corinthians 9.8 we read last week. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I think that's the exact same thing Paul say, thanking God for in 1 Corinthians 1, 4-9. I think he's basically affirming that truth at the nearing the end of his second epistle. In 1 Corinthians, grace was given you so that you are enriched and you lack nothing. 2 Corinthians, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you have all sufficiency in all things at all times that you abound in every good work. In other words, grace is God working and giving all that we need for everything in the Christian life. Everything. All of life. God's grace as power in us, being our sufficiency. God's grace doesn't just reconcile us objectively, but God's grace works in us personally, on a daily basis, moment by moment, giving us everything we need for life and godliness. That's what this grace is. John Calvin describes this aspect of grace as, quote, the blessings of every kind obtained through the gospel. Usually when people talk about God's grace, if we're honest, most of the time the only thought is, my sins have been covered. I've been released from the debt of sin. And that is a part of God's grace. That He does that. But it doesn't stop there. It's, it's every day. Everything that we need. For all of life. That's God's grace working in us. Blessings of every kind obtained through the gospel. Every blessing or godly trait that's worked in us by God's Spirit, we often refer to as graces. Little individual graces. Everything that we would call a gift of the Spirit or a fruit of the Spirit, a work of the Spirit, an evidence of the Spirit is a grace. 
graces, manifestations of God's grace, evidences of God's working in us, life-changing grace, sanctifying grace. Last week we saw that grace presents us with what seems like a reorientation of God towards us in favor. Again, God doesn't change. We're changed. By what? By grace. Grace doesn't necessarily or only reorient God toward us in favor. Grace reorients us, changing us, sanctifying us throughout our lives. That's, that's what he's talking about here. He's addressing the manifest, manifestation of grace in all speech and all knowledge. Again, he's referencing certain gifts of the Spirit that they were abusing. But that's what it looked like. You have these gifts, grace, grace gifts, speech, knowledge that are at use. He affirms God's grace in these gifts, knowing that later he will have to reprove them for their poor stewardship of it. Paul knows what he's writing about. Now think about that. He's reproving them, or, or he's here thanking God and praising God for the manifestations of God's grace in them, which he will later have to reprove them for because of their poor stewardship of it. Think about this and how true this often is of us. The Corinthians had been so wonderfully lavished by God's grace in their church that their problem is not that they lack something. He actually says, you don't lack anything. You've got everything you need. The problem is not that they don't lack anything. The problem is that they have abused what they had so much of. Now this tells us a lot about God and a lot about ourselves. They had so much grace that it was abused. So much grace that it was almost as if they weren't mature enough to handle it. Now, do we believe that God knew beforehand how they would respond, what they would do with it? Of course we do. He's omniscient. He declared the end from the beginning. He knew exactly what they would do and how this would play out. And yet, He dumps grace on them. Just pours it out. So often, our problem, like the Corinthians, is not that we have not received grace at all but that we've received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace and we're just poor stewards of it. We don't put it to work. We don't put it to use. We abuse it. Think about it from a, a more earthly illustration. The dishes pile up because we have so many dishes and so many blessed children from heaven and so much food that we can't keep up. And we complain. Well, the dishes are piled up. You've got so much. The problem is, I have so much. The laundry piles up because we have so many clothes and so many children, so many people, that it piles up. The outside chores and the work gets backed up because we have so much stuff. Oh, I'm just behind. If you didn't have anything, you'd always be caught up. You're behind because we have so much stuff. i got to get the oil changed in the car God gave me. The garden needs to be weeded because God has given so much rain. The crops need to be gathered in 
because God has given such an increase. Our what we think or consider we view as problems, what, what produce problems in our lives, it's not because we don't have anything. It's because we have so much. That's sort of the picture here with, all, with God's grace. We could never accuse God of being stingy with His grace. Never. Not once. God's not the problem. God gives an overabundance. The problem is our poor stewardship of it. And how much more does that increase our condemnation if we just continue to abuse the grace that He's given? If we continue to pinch off the hose of the outworking of our salvation, even though God is pumping grace at such mighty pressure, and yet we are the bottleneck. It's not God, it's me. Well, I can't do this and I can't do that. I'm just not going here and I don't understand this. It's not God's fault, right? God's given all grace. God's revealed everything we need. We're not lacking anything. It's us. If anything, maybe this is the application, we, we, we ought to confess that we actually need the grace of God in order, in order to properly steward the grace of God. We need His help in stewarding His grace well. We need His help in stewarding all of the things He gives us. So that's the overall emphasis of the prayer. It's the grace of God. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. So then number three, it's detailed analysis. Now don't let that heading fool you because we're not going to go into as many details as we possibly could. Remember, he's, he's describing his prayer for the church. He's affirming the obvious work of God in them. He's avoiding the tendency or any inclination to flatter them. It's all about grace. The emphasis is grace. And then when we begin to unpack this prayer with its clear emphasis on grace, it breaks up neatly according to the timeline of God's saving work among them. It's chronological. Paul is thankful for God's grace. That is, past grace, present grace, future grace. Notice past grace. Paul is thankful for God's grace given to these saints in the past. Notice the language. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. You notice the tense of the verbs. Grace of God that was given. In every way you were enriched. You were made rich with these graces. The testimony about Christ was confirmed. What that means is the gospel was laid as the firm foundation of their faith at some point in the past. And then the graces began to issue forth from that. Faith is like the engine of a train. When it's full of gospel coal, it begins to pull and it brings all of the other graces with it. The, the gospel was preached. The foundation of their faith was laid. And then from that faith, everything else began to flow. That's what he's saying here. The Corinthian Christians had in the past become the recipients of the overabundance of God's all-sufficient grace. And notice it says that this grace was given to them 
in Christ. They were enriched in Him. As with objective grace, so it is with subjective grace. All grace is given through union with Christ. Jesus Christ is always the vehicle of grace through the indwelling Spirit. Because we have Christ, we have access to all grace. It's Christ who gives life and power and efficiency to the graces that are in us, makes them living active. It's all in Christ, all in Him. That grace which strengthens us to mortify our sins and die to ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him, that, that is merely the Spirit which empowered Christ to walk resolutely to the cross, working in us the same grace. That the grace of that same Christ that died, that Spirit works that grace in us so that we can die to ourselves. The grace which gives life to every godly virtue, enabling us to glorify God in all our actions, is simply the Spirit which raised Christ from the dead, living in us, dwelling in us, and ordering all of the faculties of the inner man according to that Spirit according to that power which raised Christ from the dead, that life in Him. All grace, past, present, and future, comes to us because we're joined to Christ. This is what had happened to them. They had received grace. And then from there, it continued on. Paul confirms that they still had this grace. It wasn't just past grace, it's present grace. He tells them, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both of those those. Uh, verb portions are in the present tense. You are not lacking right now in any gift. As you wait, or as you are right now waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right now, he says. And he, he basically summarizes the essence of the entire Christian life on the earth. It is a life of having all sufficiency in all things at all times, as we wait for Christ to return. He's saying right now, the whole of the Christian life, you've got everything you need. Those who've once come into the orbit of God's grace in Christ have all that they need for all of life. This church had everything that they needed through God's grace. And yet, they still expect a greater revelation of grace at Christ's return. They had all they needed, but they didn't have all that there is. We need to remember that. We have all that we need. We don't have all that there is. We have all that, all that we need. What he's saying is you've got enough to get you to the end, but rest assured there is more to come. Ephesians 1.14 refers to the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance, or the earnest, the down payment of our inheritance. Well, these Corinthian Christians, they had manifestations of the Spirit. Therefore, they... Hope in the inheritance laid up for them. They had received the down payment. Therefore, they hoped in the balance. It's still to come. In the 4th century, St. Jerome said, We lack no gift. Nevertheless, we wait. We have everything that we need, and yet we're hopeful, expectant for more to come. 
what a blessed condition they were in and that we are in, really. By God's grace, we have all that we need to hold us over until we enter into possession of all there is. That's our condition. That's, that's the life of a Christian. They had present grace. And then we see a reference to future grace. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, will sustain, that's a future tense verb. Paul is sure that Christ will, until the end, sustain the saints by His grace. Last week we saw at 1 Peter 1, there will be grace brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. On that day, which he refers to here as the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can be confident that we who have entered into His grace in the past and who stand in His grace in the present will stand in His grace in that day. And no creature in heaven or on earth or under the earth will be able to bring one single charge against one of God's elect in that day. In Christ... We eagerly await to hear with our ears what we labor to believe by faith, that there is a guiltless verdict waiting to be pronounced. We're declared righteous even now. It's hard to believe. It's hard to walk in that. So we're waiting for that day when we hear Him say it. Well done. That's all I needed to hear. That's all we got to hear. That's all I want to hear. I believe it. I'm struggling to believe. I look at what He's done. He's all my sufficiency. It has to be true. But then I look at myself, and it's hard to believe, right? We, this is how we live. It's hard, it's hard, it's hard. On that day, it's settled. That's, that's what we're doing. Future grace. The word sustain here, verse 6, it's the same word that's translated as confirm or or. It's translated confirm in verse 6. This is in verse 8. Same word. It means to lay a foundation or to put firm footing beneath their feet. The point is that in past grace and in present grace, Christ has laid and is laying the bedrock which will uphold the saints until we enter into the judgment at which, standing upon the same bedrock, we're found blameless. Before God. The foundation has been laid. It's there. It's not moving. It's the same confirmation. The same foundation. The grace of God. Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Christ has now reconciled, past tense, in the body of His flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. He'd done that in the past to guarantee that in the future you're presented blameless. That's kind of the idea that he's getting at here. You've received the past grace. You've got the present grace because you received it in the past. And it will continue. And it will continue forever. You will have it on that day. Past grace, present grace, future grace. Now, verses 4 through 8 again. I'm going to read through it. The purpose is maybe you'll be able to see some of this stuff fall into place. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, 
even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is describing His prayer. He is affirming God's work. He is avoiding any flattery. It's all about grace. Past grace, present grace, future grace. That's what He's doing here. Now, my plan is to do, look at verse 9 next week. But I do want to end here because we need to understand again or at least have our, our minds brought back to the fountain of everything that's been said. The fountain of Paul's prayer, the fountain of grace, the fountain of our perseverance in this life, the fountain of our hope in the day of Christ we see 1 Corinthians 1, 9, the first three words. God is faithful. God is faithful. Paul's optimism and kindness and confidence toward the saints in Christ, in spite of their present sins, was not because they had the wherewithal. If they heard his letter, if they read it enough times, loud enough, with a furrowed brow enough, that they would be able to lift themselves up out of their sins and sustain themselves on the path. That's, that's not it. Paul's towering optimism toward them was watered by the fountain of the faithfulness of God. God had given them grace. God had given them gifts. God would sustain them guiltless. For this reason, he thanks God for the grace given to them. And the same is true for us. If there be in this room any grace, any perseverance, any confidence among us at all, let's be sure that we're resting all, all of that upon the faithfulness of God. Let's be sure that we're thanking God for His grace. Let's, let's prove with our actions what we say with our mouths. One of the ways that you do that is by actually praying and thanking God for His grace. And let's even go beyond that. Let's be the kind of people who thank God for His grace in other people, in spite of sins that we might see. Let's not be the kind of people who show that they have no real affinity for God's grace because we just constantly miss the forest of God's grace for little bitty weeds of sin. It's interesting to me, and I know that God's grace is a, is a constant from the beginning of the world to the end, but in our human experience, the, the most common constant that we see amongst other human beings is sin. That's, that's the normative and in, in viewed from that sense, that's where we see God's grace as amazing, as startling, as shocking. God's grace coming in. And yet, as startling as it is over against the commonality of man walking in depravity opposed to God, we, we focus our attention on the commonality, that, that which is sinful. It, you can point out sin in my life. I mean, congratulations. 
right? Why, why is that surprising? Now, I'm not saying we ought to ignore sin, but that, that's not surprising that there's sin, that there needs to be growth, that there's things that got to be corrected. That shouldn't be surprising to any of us. But that the grace of God would be seen in even a shadow or a hint in any of us, that should shock us. We should be drawn to see that, especially in our brothers and sisters. Drawn to see the grace, not drawn to see what has been there from the beginning. We know we're sinners. That's, that's not special. But to see a step of grace, to see a brother come th- three steps forward, two steps back. I'm not going to talk about two steps back, Amen. right? There's grace. I'm thankful for the grace. We need to be that kind of people. And again, prove it. Not by just outward confession or anything like that. In your prayers. You'll, you'll prove that in your prayer life. It'll show forth. So let's do that. Let's pray and thank God for His grace. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 22 says, As they were eating, He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. So as we come to the Lord's table, we break the bread and we see in the breaking of the bread the body of Christ offered to us. This is just bread. Again, we look beyond it to the thing signified, which is Christ's own body. In John 6, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he's talking about faith. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. As the elements are passed, go to Christ, make a a confession of sin, come before Him, Paul says, whoever eats therefore, or whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself.